Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. If you are enjoying these talks and you would like to dive deeper into the topics discussed by Zenki Roshi in this podcast, consider becoming a premium subscriber. This will give you access to recorded Q&A sessions related to each talk, as well as previously unreleased talks from our intensives. Becoming a premium subscriber helps to support the continuation of the podcast and Zanki Roshi's teachings. Learn more about it by clicking the link in the show notes. As always, you're welcome to join us live for these Dharma Talks. You can join us online via Zoom or in person. You can find a link to our website with the Dharma Talk schedule and more information also in the show notes. Now here's Zanki Roshi. Good morning. Uh, last week, I gave a talk that I retroactively called uh, the everyday dance of form and emptiness. And uh, some of you were present for that talk. Some of you weren't. If you weren't, you can you know, listen to it on the podcast. I um, liked that theme, or I thought that theme was so rich that um, it feels to me like I'd like to continue talking about it. Maybe turn it into a mini-series, you know, dancing with form and emptiness. So what did I say, just for those of you who aren't there, or, and those of us who were there, as a reminder? One thing I said is, like, we're not monastics. I keep wondering what we are. We're not monastics. You know, Zen is very much developed in a monastic environment, so if we're not monastics... Can we practice adequately? Many people have this question. Maybe you don't, but... So, the, la- the latest thing I came up with is, like, we're everyday life practitioners. Everyday life practitioners. And if you are an everyday life practitioner, then you have to find a way to use your everyday life circumstances as field of practice. Well, this isn't to say that you don't need a meditation practice. That's a dimension I don't want to touch on right now. It's like, how do we see those in connection, your daily practice, I guess, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Uh, your daily sitting practice and your everyday life practice. And then I uh, pointed to the Heart Sutra that gives us this slogan, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And, which is sometimes overlooked if you don't know the Heart Sutra or don't chant it every day, um, 
that it says when Avalokiteshvara, the protagonist in the Art Sutra, was realizing through meditation, contemplation, deep looking, that form is emptiness and emptiness form, he, she was liberated from all suffering. In the same, this form is emptiness and emptiness is form. The same is true for feelings, perceptions, impulses, and con- consciousness. So, all the, all, everything in Western terms that we call objective and subjective, all phenomena, all appearances are empty. And emptiness expresses itself through all those phenomena. And to realize this is liberation. And then I said that we, one starting point, useful starting point is to be clear about the conceptual understanding of emptiness. And um, there are three things that I fall back on to if somebody asks me what is emptiness. It's just conceptual. It's not enough. But, you know, it's change. It's interdependence. And it's non-self in the sense that we are not something, we ourselves are nothing stable or independent. And then, of course, this conceptual understanding has to mature into, flower, into an experiential understanding or it needs in other words it needs to be embodied um why are we so afraid Why are we so defended? What is going on in our life that we can't be at ease? What is it? With us, humans. You know, I'm, I've said this before, you, you, you watch animals and you're, you're, you can be really inspired in how they deal with pain and suffering and death. They, it's not like that an animal is pain-free. It's just an animal is complaint-free. It's like I watched at, at uh, Cressamon Zen Center where I lived for 20 years. I watched our dog who we had for you know, over a decade, I watched Igor die and or be in the dying process. And he was clearly in pain and yelping and, you know, flies were like covering his face or we let him lie under a tree. But there was a kind of peace 
a kind of calmness in him in enduring this um, this um, disintegration of his body. And I was inspired because I felt like I, I, I want to be able to die like that. I think there is a kind of formless panic or maybe a panic over formlessness at the core of our being. And, and we're constantly... Um, trying to give ourselves form to hold this formless panic at bay. You making, am I making sense? This is change, you know, this is experientially, this is change and your desire for, for stability. To let change, emptiness, touch you, be like, to, to be willing to feel this formless panic of not knowing where you're coming from, where you're going, what you are. This is where, you know, non-self comes in. All this, you know, all this uh, struggle for identity. It's like, what is it for? It's, it's a defense against this formless panic. And the and the um, and this idea that we are independent, that somehow we can separate ourselves from others, from the natural environment, and cocoon ourselves into something that we are in control of, and then there's we. It's so funny. It's like. We know this isn't true, but it's very difficult to accept this knowledge. You know that you, you know viruses appear, like the pandemic showed us, and they threaten our lives and heat waves. Uh, the collapse of stock markets and financial security—all—all all of the, we all know that this is there, and yet. Our, the struggle of our life is to defend against this and give ourselves form that is, we hope, unassailable. And this is delusion because it, we, you know, on the one hand we know this is true, but it's very, very hard to accept that it is true. And so we continue to struggle in hopes that somehow these strategies are going to work for us. Contemporarily, they work. I also said last week that I think it's useful to use the mind states that we like the least as as entry points to emptiness. So sort of like formless panic is kind of the worst. That's existential groundlessness that we uh, defend against. But, you know, confusion, 
like not knowing what to think. It's like a taste of that. You feel sort of panicky in your mind because you don't know how to make sense of something. Uh, you um, or ambivalence, you know, you don't know what to decide. Should I stay or should I go? If I stay, there will be trouble. Anyway, you can continue. <laughs> so much wisdom <laughs> in popular music. Um, but it's it's that you know. It's like what you. Where does the orientation come from in this question of should I stay or should I go? Where it's like, is God going to give it to us? You know, some people think so. It's, if you tune into, listen carefully for God's will, align yourself with God's will, and that will be the right path. Or in Zen, you know, you let the 10,000 things come forward. It's another name for God. Just less spelled out, you know. But um, let the 10,000 things come forward and tell you what to do. But there will always be uncertainty about, like, is this really God's will? I'm just giving, you know, credit to different approaches here. Um, is this really what the 10,000 things are suggesting here? <laughs> you, 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 I, I think you... You cannot get rid of the uncertainty. There's a need to just go and trust in an unfold in in a in a life that unfolds as change. It manifests as a temporary form. I have um, experience with a kind of form of therapy, although the inventor of this therapy doesn't think of it as therapy, but it's a kind of you know psychological work. But it's uh, it started as constellating family systems in space. So you you know pick you, like with a group, and you pick people and say like you be my father, you be my mother, and you put people in the room, and then a certain dynamic unfolds. Now, this is interesting for the person who constellates their family system or, you know, the, the system at work, you know, organization, um, or just any situation. And it turns out you can constellate all kinds of things. You can constellate, ab constellate abstract concepts. And you could constellate form and emptiness and see what they have to, how they interact with each other. <laughs> This is very interesting. And I have done this quite a bit. And, and it's, but it's also very interesting to be a representative of somebody's father or brother. Or, you know, often you choose genders accordingly, but you know, you can a man can represent a female uh, person or anyway, it's, it's all possible. It's just like, it's like what people read into you as a representative does have some plays a role. So in these um, constellations, you represent someone else in a different system and you 
find that you have sensations in your body and feelings that are unfamiliar and and it's like they do they don't belong to you you are like an antenna for a an inter, interdependent system that that usually you are not which which taught me that I'm just an antenna for an interdependent system that I'm very familiar with. Do you know what I mean? This is like, there isn't a stable independent self that is what it is. There is a self that emerges from, you know, the factors that surround it. Now, we, 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 all know this, like we know that we are the food that we're eating. And if we ingest, you know, poisoned things, then our life doesn't continue. But we are the emergent product of all the contexts that we're in. But we want to claim, for some reason, we want to claim some psychological stability vis-a-vis all these contexts and factors, because otherwise it feels like you're just, um, you're just, I don't know, what does it feel like? You're just a victim of circumstances? potentially victim of circumstances that would that's what we would be afraid of <clears throat> so i'm i suggested can we use difficult mind states like confusion and crisis and uh, feelings of dependency um to let them be gateways into emptiness and then maybe develop a vision of living our lives as an activity, an open-ended activity, without any hope or fear of some permanent stability permanent identity, permanent direction. And I think the difficulty I have with the mini-series of The Dance of Form and Emptiness is that Your life isn't an abstract thing. Your life is the particularities. It's one particularity after another. This is what, you know, we say moment by moment and think that we know what that is. But it's like, now I'm saying, your life unfolds as particularity, particularity, particularity. You know, when I walk around in my 
apartment, you know, and I hit my bare foot against the corner of some stupid fur piece of furniture, right? <laughs> then my life is that particularity. So it's like, it in that moment, it doesn't make sense to have somebody espouse, you know, general wisdom about form and emptiness and stuff. It's like, you know, that's what you've got to deal with. <clears throat> that's what I mean by particularity. You are married to a particular person, and that particular person has, you know, a certain kind of neurotic structure, and you have a certain kind of neurotic structure, and that's the particularity of your marriage, you know. You, you, you find a way with your toe, you find a way with your partner, like that. And there's so many particularities, like, I, you know, I couldn't enumerate them all, and they're different for you and different for me. And So what, do you, what, do you, what can you say anyway, then? But there's certain, like, the German word gestalt, you know, that's made it into the uh, English language. There's certain, like, certain gestalts that maybe are useful to look at or appreciate. So I'm, so let me try something. I, um, we live here as a, as a small community and we all have jobs and then we have to organize how we cover certain chores that need to be done to so i i've taken on sweeping the paths and um so I have this, I have this uh, renewed, if you've lived in a, pra in a monastery for 20 years, you've done some sweeping, but I, um, I have a renewed practice of sweeping. And um, what this practice of sweeping makes clear to me again is that I have a bias toward order and tidiness. And I could tell you a story about how I grew up and, you know, the environment I grew up that was, let's just say, be really general here. There was some chaos in my, in the house that I grew up with, with objects, emotionally. And, uh, but you know, if I tell this story, I can make sense of my bias toward order. But it's almost like putting a lid on a pot and then say like, oh, that's how it is with me. But the danger with that is like, the pot is way too small that you are narrating there. And the lid that you put on is way too small. There's something bigger at play. It's like, for whatever reason, you know, the way my father and my mother were. and Okay, that played a part. But 
it's like there's there's a there's an existential dimension in me that doesn't like the feelings that arise in me or the bodily sensations that arise in me when there is chaotic energy. So I make an effort. I struggle against that perceived chaos by continuing to bring order into my life. It is not objective chaos. I'm just using the word chaos here. It's like di- disorder, it's untidy, it's you know messy, whatever word you want. I'm just using order and chaos right now. It's not that there are things in disarray or that you know there are heated emotions or whatever. It is the sensations that arise in me in relationship to these things that I find intolerable. And so I'm I'm trying to extinguish the source of these feelings. Order things. How does it show up in sweeping? It shows up in a certain, you know, in a certain aggressive energy with which I attack the dirt. And I, what I want, what I want you to see is, I, I've been studying this for you know decades in myself, so I have a way of dealing with it now. But I want you to notice, let's say, this aggressive ad- energy, and not, you know, ignore it or say that it shouldn't be there, but actually let that be fully present for you and use it as a gateway to understanding something about the way you relate in this um, field of order and chaos. Now, order is like form, and chaos is like emptiness. Why do I say that? Because chaos is like uncontrollable change, right? Leaves are constantly falling from these trees that we have. It's like, if you're biased toward order, you can start hating the trees. It's like, when do you stop shedding stuff? The other day I had this, like I was sweeping, like I really wanted to make things clean. I spent a couple of hours, I did yard work and stuff. And then this massive storm came. It's like hailstorm. And I felt ridiculous, you know. It's like, it felt like total chaos entered into my just tidied up world. We had this like danger of the Zendo flooding and we had to bring our pumps. In the end, there was like five of us bailing water and like big hails coming down from the sky. And it was like crazy energy and panicky and get it. Then the pump wasn't there and I was rushing around getting the tools to do it, and luckily there were people to help and so forth. But it felt like chaos just entered in this unpredictable way. 
But the low-level chaos is just that things are just always getting dirty, right? Dirt just always accumulates. If you have children, you don't know where all the dirt is coming from. It's, it's amazing. <clears throat> all right. So, But the thing is, how do we relate to it? Now, I can imagine that some of you have a bias toward chaos. Or let's call it a bias against order. And that could be primed by a certain kind of family situation where somebody always wanted to discipline you or, you know, make you be orderly and you just rejected it. And say, I don't care. You have this demand on me, like, you know, if we want to deal in cliches, you know, your father. And then you just, you know, as a, <laughs> as a way of uh, being defiant, you know, you just don't care. And you learn to tolerate chaos. Clothes pile up, things accumulate. I don't care. Because you don't want to be orderly. You don't want to be disciplined because you don't like the feeling, the way it feels to keep things in order. It's too constraining. You prefer to be messy and lazy. Right? I'm just imagining that. Would be possible. <laughs> but the the more you study your sweeping, the more you study whether you sweep with aggression or you sweep with reluctance. You see that it's like you can't have one without the other. You know, you can't have the pleasure of ordering things without chaos. If everything was already in order, there'd be no activity that you could bring to the situation. So in a way, a person who's biased toward order is completely dependent on, on things constantly falling apart. If you enjoy managing situations or people, you know, you need them to misbehave or otherwise you are out of a job. This is difficult to see. You know, it seems obvious when I say it, but it's actually difficult to see because we don't appreciate this side that we're defending against. And when you are biased toward chaos or laziness or letting things just be messy, you are probably dependent on other people picking up the, you know, doing the ordering for you. This is generally true for teenagers, you know, because they, in the end, you know, mom's going to do it. But it's, you know, you'll be accused of being, as an adult, if you have this kind of behavior, you have to constantly deal with the complaints of being irresponsible and, you know, not being productive or whatever people have to say about this stuff. And you just have to, like, 
push it away and say like, well, I don't know, you're so uptight. <laughs> what, who are you to tell me what to do? <clears throat> okay, so we can study this in abstract in abstraction, or we can study it in the energy that we have in the sweeping. If you if you attack the dirt with aggression, like I would do with my bias, you kind of have to watch that and say, like, how can I bring myself to this with respect for this as a never-ending task and respect for the trees who will, like, deposit their leaves and their, you know. I don't know. It's amazing how much stuff comes down from a tree um, every day. And to relax into the chaos. But you don't give up. You don't give up your intend of bringing form to it, in this case, to tidiness. The intention of making the place appear pleasant and taken care of for others. And there are, there are, maybe this, I don't know if you find this interesting, I find this interesting, you know, to find out in the actual doing of something, you find out where the problems are. If you are really attached to tidiness or or cleanliness. It's like the more you sweep, the more dirt you discover. It's like in a landscape situation or something with rocks and paths and, you know, it's like you have a straw broom. It's made out of straw bristles, right? They have a certain coarseness to it. And then you, you try to like get into this crevice between the path and the, the, rock that lines it or something and you just the more you look the more the more it never can be clean and there's just small particulate that will always get through the bristles of your of your of your broom and you just have to let it let it be there and step back and say this is this is good enough Because if you don't do that, you'd be like trying to clean like a square inch for half an hour. But you, I only have half an hour to clean every day, so I have to I have to do it in some way that respects the dirt and the chaos that can never be removed. Now you understand that I'm not just talking about sweeping and the dirt and stuff, right? <laughs> You 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 want to study you know how you how you deal with how you organize your house how you go about your tasks in the day how you deal with your email inbox how you uh, do childcare how you relate to your mind. The mind produces thoughts the same way the tree drops leaves and dead flowers and little branches and 
fruit. You know, we have a black walnut tree. Right now, the walnuts aren't ripe yet, but once they're ripe, the squirrels come and they eat all the walnuts and you hear them, you know, they're like, they, they're like crazy. They're chewing the black walnuts all summer long and they, you know, drop all the, the outer parts of the black walnut and they just want to get to them. And then it's like, it's a complete mess. <laughs> and I think the mind is like that. <laughs> it's like, the mind is like a black walnut tree. You know? It's just making thoughts happen all the time. It's curious to me um, that when we talk about clarity, there are two ways that clarity is being talked about. One way to talk about clarity is, you know, in terms of somebody is clear in their thinking or in their speaking. So you say something and you call that, all right, somebody says something and you call that clear when the meanings are easily picked up and put together, that the person speaks clearly. It's not like all jumbly and, you know, what were they saying? That's clarity. But there's also clarity, and that's interesting for meditators, right? It's like when, and I've presented, and previously I've presented this practice of soft eyes, where you don't focus anything in particular, and this practice is an easy access to like stopping thought for at least momentarily. And then that clarity is like the absence of thought. That's a different kind of clarity. It's like seeing or hearing all the sensorial appearances of the world without any thought overlay. And this is something that, you know, Zen, some Zen practitioners aspire to, you know, this kind of experience. And it is an important experience. And it's like to notice that there is no need to think, that you can actually have a still mind. But if you... If you attach to that as a wanted state of mind that's peaceful and, you know, you're not, like, you're free of agitation and discursive chaos in your mind. You have to make an effort for that. It's like you have to make an effort to sweep. But it's not, it's, it's clearly not something that is stable. It's like the tree keeps shedding leaves. Right? Nor is it something that we, that is practical to live. You can't go through your life with a blank mind. You need to, you need to find a way 
to give your life form also through the medium of conceptual thought. You need to communicate. You need to be able to speak clearly with yourself, too. Or it's helpful if that's part of you, if you have that skill. So the way, the paradoxical way of, of starting to feel that you are in, I'll say this sort of in air quotes, that you are in possession of a still clear mind is to relax with your discursive thinking. Just the way when you sweep, you have to relax that while you're sweeping, there's already more leaves falling down. So you just do, like I have a half hour of sweeping practice, you just sit for half an hour and you relax with your discursive thinking. You know, the instruction is always like, let the thoughts come and go. What is that? It's making space for them to just come and go. Don't try to make them go away. So you have to like become a larger space that is not identified with the thoughts. But you do watch them. And you, you do your sweeping, you know, labeling or returning to the breath. That would be your practice of sweeping. But it's an endless practice. One last thing about sweeping. I um, took this practice on a few weeks ago, and um, so I have to put it in my schedule. Little aside, if something's not on your schedule, it's a fantasy. (laughs) I think maybe this is highlighted in our time and age in a different way, because maybe lives in other eras and decades were more ritualized where you know sort of you get up and then there's a certain way of doing things and you go to work and then your employer has a structure for you like the home office is a disaster in that way you know now you need to do all the all the structuring yourself you don't just go somewhere and and you put yourself into a structure now you're responsible for it yourself and that's hard. <clears throat> okay, so I put it on my schedule. I put it 8 a.m. sweeping every day. Um, but it's not happening every day for various reasons. And it's, it's like I have to change the way I do things. And maybe it has to move from 8 o'clock to another time slot. But what I'm talking about is scheduling things. And again, listen to the larger context. Like scheduling things now means everything you do in your day. You impose a certain kind of form 
onto time. You make things happen one after another that are important in your life. But the chaos of emptiness is always lurking everywhere because, as they say, shit happens. And your plans and schedules get derailed. What do you do? Do you say like, oh, I'm going to stop scheduling things. I'm going to stop planning. This is all for naught. You know, it's not, it's not working. Chaos reigns and I'm just going to go with the flow. That would be biased toward chaos in my terminology that is very coarse here. But if you hold on tight to your schedule, that would be biased toward form. And you like, whenever something happens that's also important, you say, like, oh, I can't do that. You know? Somebody who's really important to you calls, it's like, I'm not taking the call, sticking with the schedule. So it's a dance. It's a dance of continually bringing a certain kind of ordering to your life that has the that carries the your your intentions and your and your um yeah let's 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 just leave it at that you understand right like your intentionality is carried by how you schedule things and give form to time time is really your activity unfolding And then you're also open and receptive to being taken into service by the 10,000 things. You make things happen and you let things happen. You make things happen and you let things happen. This is a... Um, Maybe what I'm saying sounds trivial to you, but my experience is that it is an unresolvable tension. It's never, what I mean by unresolvable, it's never going to be finally resolved. But many people live with the energy of wanting to resolve it finally. Finding the magic trick to bring their life into, you know, uh, make it peaceful. <clears throat> Either by refraining to participate in certain things, or by getting really, you know, aggressive in tightening up and scheduling everything and running a tight ship. Both Extremes, if we want to frame it that way, are not satisfying. So this is where, you know, I, it's easy for me to say, you know, this vision of living your life as a, as an unending activity without the hope or fear of, of any permanent stability or, or, um, um, identity or or direction it's easy for me to say that but my example with sweeping or how you schedule yourself is like 
we, we have to discover this vision and this possibility in the particularities of our engagement. You have to use the imbalance in your life to balance yourself. You have to respect the aggression with which you attack the dirt or the tightness with which you run your schedule or the laziness with which you refrain from doing the things that need to be done. Or, you know, those energies, you need to actually use them to balance yourself and find ease. And the ease is in allowing this to be an unresolvable dance. Thank you very much.